Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And on the podcast table today, we have uh, the full Thanksgiving uh, arrangement of mm-hmm. foods. We have uh, we have the turkey. We have the tofurkey. And the tofurkey. We have both. One's inside the other. Sorry, I didn't clue you in about that. The tofurkey yunkin? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you have to cut through the turkey to get to the tofurkey yunkin. You know uh, how I feel about tofurkey. You like it? No. You don't like it? I know. The taste or the idea that it, it's it's fake meat and needs to take on the form of meat to be edible? All of the above. <laughs> I think that it is just an abomination on the tables of... I'm sorry for anybody who likes that and brings it to Thanksgiving, too. I, I think it's a nice alternative. Nice, um, nice But I just... Thanks. Uh, it's just not something I dig, I have to say. Well, you know, I was looking at a study a couple of weeks ago, a 2010 study from McGill University's Department of Psychology, mm-hmm. and they... They, they entered into their research thinking that the idea of you, you look at meat, you see a picture of meat, you see some meat on a table, it's going to make you aggressive. It's going to like tap into that hind brain and you're going to, you're going to get all ravenous and, uh, and defensive and start fighting off your, your fellow family members or, or your friends at a restaurant to get a sweet piece of that meat. But they found, uh, the opposite. They found that just seeing meat provoked a sense of non-aggression. Uh, and the theory here, is that it could, in some way, shape, or form, relate to uh, our ancestral primate family feastings. Huh. So the idea is, you know, okay, you're out there scoring the meat, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting a big, pl- uh, you know, putting a spear into the side of an animal and blood's going everywhere, and, you know, okay, maybe that's going to make you more aggressive. But by the time you get it back to camp, by the time it's cooked up, ready to eat, mm-hmm. you're probably surrounded by your f- friends and family. You're probably surrounded by people you trust, and therefore the experience of this meat is going to be uh, one that's more peaceful. I wonder if the same would be true if it were a tofurkey, if that would provoke aggression. Well, no, no. A kid. You think you think that the tofurkey would provoke aggression rather than making it peaceful? Well, here's the thing about that example. What's really interesting is that the turkey has come to symbolize this communal uh, cooperation, this this tradition. Mm-hmm. So it's not as they had suspected this idea of, oh, you know, each man for himself and, and, mm-hmm. and trying to get that coveted source of protein. It's really about the the act. Okay. I think that's very interesting. But it seems like, like that's why the tofurkey would work. Because even if it's... As an aggressor? No, no, no. As a, as a peace, uh, peace-loving uh, uh, centerpiece on the table. Because you look at it, it looks like turkey, and then maybe you're tapping into some sort of ancestral uh, longing for a, a piece of meat that has been cooked, and, uh, and, and you're all experiencing it together as a family. Or maybe it comes to symbolize this, um, this sham of family dynamics. <laughs> Possibly. That's that's an arg- argument as well. <laughs> that's a whole other... We could do a whole other psychological profile of Thanksgiving. And, um, and I should say that that study was, like a lot of these, it involved button smashing uh, subjects. So we're looking at random pictures of cooked meat, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then they would they would punch the button, and uh, and uh, and they were determining you know what pictures raised ag- aggression, raised the the hackles, and which ones uh, uh, created a more peaceful vibe. Okay, so, so they had some neutral pictures, and they had pictures of meat, and yeah. they were just kind of trying to figure out what level of Aggressivity they were approaching that button mashing with. Yeah, and, and uh, they're looking to do more research in it uh, later on. But it is interesting mm-hmm. to take with us into this Thanksgiving uh, feast, which, of course, involves far more than just the turkey. And that's the thing for me. Anytime I'm, I, I'm not a huge fan of Thanksgiving dinner, mm-hmm. Be- and, and part of it is because there's just so much food. 
even when I was a kid, even when I had this ferocious appetite, I would often be in the mindset like, well, I've really only got room on my plate to eat as much broccoli casserole as I want. Maybe a little turkey and maybe like one other dish. But there's no yeah. way I'm getting all these dishes in on the action. Well, this is from Jessica Toothman's House of Forks article, Tales of Turkey. Americans eat an estimated 675 million pounds of the stuff. We're talking about 306 million kilograms. And that's on Thanksgiving with each bird weighing in at an average of 15 pounds or 7 kilograms. And that comes out to be about 45 million turkeys who get the axe. Except for that one that the president always pardons. Yeah. And I really want him to, to not pardon one some year. Whoever the president really? is, to just say, you know what, times are tough. I'm not doing it. No and then they, they do like the public execution of the turkey. Yeah. On TV. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. The um, president does it. He's like Ned Stark up there. Uh, you know, very honorable. Yeah. It's like I, I'm. You know, I'm going to man of my word. I'm going to do the the acts myself. Oh, dear. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So there is a massive amount of gluttony that is associated with Thanksgiving. As you said, as a child, you're like, whoa, I can eat, but not all of that. Uh, turns out that according to the Calorie Control Council, that the Thanksgiving meal, including appetizers, the average meal is about 4,500 calories rich and 229 grams of fat packed into it. Yeah. That's insane. So then it becomes this idea of, okay, fine, you're going to eat that much, but what is all of that doing to your teeth, to your oral hygiene? So we're going to present this sort of amuse-bouche, this, this sort of like appetizer to you guys before Thanksgiving actually rolls around in a couple of days with this idea of sort of the voyaging into the mouth and looking at the lovely bacterial secrets that dwell inside. Because so much of it is just... So unnecessarily sugary, like sweet potatoes. I love sweet potatoes, mm-hmm. but the 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 sort of default sweet potato dish that I grew up on as part of a Thanksgiving or holiday meal is that really sweet sweet potato. What is it? Marshmallows. Yeah, marshmallows all over the top of it, uh-huh. and it's just it's and it and that in itself is a dessert item. Like I remember loving it, and I and you know it's like this is even at a young age when when I'm still eating lots of sweets, I would say this is delicious. This would make a good dessert, except it's not a dessert. You eat it during the meal, and then you have a piece of three different pies for dessert instead. Yeah. Yeah, and everything, there's just a massive amount of starch and, and sugar and carbohydrates all mm-hmm. packed into this. And this turns out to be really the recipe for disaster for your teeth. But first, let's take a look at prehistoric human teeth and the prehistoric human diet. Because if I were to say to you, hey man, do you, would you rather have the teeth of a prehistoric human or a modern human, what would you say? I guess one would tend to think, oh, I want modern teeth, not caveman teeth. Caveman teeth were probably stupid and crooked and fell out and all. <laughs> but yeah, they didn't have so. toothpaste. Uh, they didn't have toothbrushes or minty fresh gum. But they did have a secret weapon, which turns out to be their diets. Because what did prehistoric uh, uh, people do? They were hunters and gatherers. They went around. They 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 gathered berries or whatever they could find to yeah. eat they they killed what they were able to find a lot of it was seasonal it you know depended on what was available and they went from one meal to the next until eventually the ag- agrarian revolution comes around and we start growing crops we start creating surpluses of crops and mm-hmm. then of course human culture as we know it sort of swells up from there 
Yeah, um, this was published in Nature Genetics. Alan Cooper, the director of the Australian Center for Ancient DNA, and his research team looked at calcified plaque on ancient teeth from 34 prehistoric human skeletons. And just as you said, he found that as diets changed over time, shifting from meat and vegetables to sugar and carbohydrates, that the composition of bacteria in our mouths also changed. And this turns out to be really, as I said, devastating to teeth. Yeah, we've talked before about, um, especially recently, we've done a lot of work uh, talking about the bacteria that lives inside us. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of it that lives inside of us. There's a lot of it that lives in our mouth. Mm-hmm. And we, we really come to under, we're really beginning to understand uh, the human body as not merely a single organism, but this, this sort of crude ship, this, uh, this amalgam of various different species that make us who and what we are. Mm-hmm. A lot of those bacteria are beneficial. But especially, according to this study, especially when you, when the diet shifts, suddenly we're eating things in quantities that we didn't eat before. We're eating things we didn't uh, necessarily eat before all that often, and it shifts that bacterial population. Yeah, and all of a sudden you start to get huge amounts of gum disease and cavities, particularly if you fast forward from prehistoric humans to the industrial age and you've got processed flour and sugar. Yes. Because these, these guys really sort of add to that bacterial profile or the the bad bacterial profile and things just run rampant in the mouth yeah uh the the really it was just troubling quote from cooper in this uh, he said you're walking around with a permanent immune response which is not a good thing it causes problems all over the place a permanent immune response like uh, just imagine that that situation compared to our our ancestors in prehistoric times their their teeth were more or less their their whole dental hygiene was more or less in a state of of readiness Mm -hmm. for what it was intended to consume but uh since the agrarian revolution we have regularly consumed things that we were not built to consume and and consumed them quantities we weren't built to consume and therefore our mouths are in this constant state of disorder. Things are out of whack from the very beginning. And there's no wonder we have all of these problems with our with our teeth and plaque and and uh, the whole cascade of issues that follow you into the grave. Yeah, I mean, it's chilling when he puts it in the context of an, an immune response because mm-hmm. we don't tend to think of cavities as, as being as sort of this immune response of our bodies uh, being broken down by all this bacteria. Uh, but that is the case. Uh, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to talk about something that is very dastardly, the S-mutons. All right, we're back. And uh, if you live here in the United States in a couple of days, it's going to be Thanksgiving. And uh, well, what's going to happen is your teeth are going to gear up for one of the biggest assaults of the year on its enamel. Yeah, this is like Lord of the Rings orcs attacking <laughs> uh, the walls kind of a situation. Just a massive horde. Like, things that, that are normally fought off in, in, you know, in, in varying degrees throughout the year, now they have rallied. And now all the, the orc tribes have come together to tear down uh, the civilization of man. Or in this case, all the fatty, starchy, sugary foods mm-hmm. have come together in a massive army to destroy your mouth. And they are hanging out with something called Streptococcus mutants. This is also known as S mutants on the street or mutons. And they delight that the this S mutants at all of the lovely starches, carbs, and sugar commingling on your tongue and then sticking to your teeth enamel where S mutans churns out acid and creates plaque. Yes. So you've provided the S mutons with everything it needs to just really get to reproducing in your mouth and really start tearing stuff down. Yeah, I mean, what kind of looks like 
sticky white gunk, you know, mm-hmm. if you're partial to looking at the white gunk on your teeth, is um, it, it's really a fortress of molecules known as glucans, and those are building blocks of plaque. So think of them as like bricks stacked in a wall. And those are rife with bacteria, and that's what gives a safe haven to this bacteria and helps it to churn out acid. So think about that as you're, as you're consuming any kind of Thanksgiving feast this year, and do not skip on the brushing afterwards. I know I sound like an old person and a mom saying that, but seriously, brush your teeth. But really, I mean, and floss your if teeth. you think about it, if you have a piece of pie, it has all the starches and the carbs and the sugar, yeah. which is the worst combination you could have for your teeth. Yeah. And yeah. you know you're sitting there all day long, sort of lolling around the house. You're probably not brushing your teeth. This stuff is really going to town. And I'm going to throw this out, too. If There's a good chance you're in a situation where you want a little alone time to get away from uh, the family members. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you love them all, it can be a bit much. So this is the perfect excuse. Uh, if someone says, hey, why are you going away to brush your teeth uh, like five times a day? You say, this is why. Listen to this podcast. Look at this study. This stuff is horrible for my mouth. I have to really up my defenses today, and that's why I keep disappearing. And I'm not listening to podcasts in the bathroom on my iPhone. I swear. I'm vanquishing the S-mutants that are taking over my mouth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's not all, um, you know, orcs attacking your mouth and so so forth at at Thanksgiving. Uh, There is a little little silver lining. Yeah. Yeah. And it comes in the form of cranberry sauce. Where if you like me, that was the one thing I didn't eat at Thanksgiving. <laughs> I was like, all right, I, you know, I'll eat this, I'll eat this, I'll pile this up on my plate, I guess. Cranberry sauce, now I'll pass. No? Yeah, I that- passed on it. I, not anymore. It's, it's certainly not anymore now that we have uh, this information before. Well, it's tart, it's acidic, it really cuts through the more fatty items like stuffing. Mm-hmm. That's why it's my go-to. But according to dentist, food scientist, and microbiologist Hayun Kun, he discovered that compounds within the cranberry disrupt enzymes known as glucosal transferases that bacteria use to build those glucons, that, those, that fortress, that gunk on your teeth. So yeah, this 2007 study, they, they, they list out a number of different benefits to the cranberries, mm-hmm. to the cranberries in your diet at Thanksgiving or any other time. They found that the chemical changes caused by cranberry juice create an energy barrier that keeps bacteria from getting close to the urinary tract lining. Yes. And is a recent sufferer of, uh, of a UTI. Uh, I, I definitely uh, agree with that defense method. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, direct uh, measure- measurements show that the adhesive forces between E. coli and cells of the urinary tract are greatly reduced when at least 5% solution of cranberry juice cocktail is present. They found that cranberry juice causes tiny tendrils on the surface of uh, the type of E. coli bacteria responsible for the most serious types of UTIs. They become compressed. They reduce the bacteria's ability to latch onto the lining of the urinary tract. And they found that E. coli grown in uh, cranberry juice uh, or the isolated uh, PACs are unable to form biofilms. Biofilms are clusters containing high concentrations of bacteria, and those are required for infections to develop. Uh, finally, when E. coli um, is cultured over, ex- over extended periods in solutions containing various concentrations of cranberry juice, their cell membranes undergo changes that hinder the bacteria's ability to attach to those urinary tract cells. So it was all of that research that really informed Q and the other researchers to say, maybe it, um, this cranberry, the molecules of the cramb- cranberry, can act on the teeth in a beneficial way, in the yes. same beneficial way, actually. And so what they did is they isolated those molecules and they applied them to the teeth of rats. Uh, and they found that glucon, again, that the white gunky stuff mm-hmm. in Fortress, in acid production by S-mutons was reduced by up to 70% and cavity formation in rats was slashed by up to 45%. 
So Koo would probably say to you, hey, I'm not advocating that you eat that whole gelatinous roll of, of cranberry sauce at the dinner table. But what he is proposing is that they might be able to extract those molecules and come up with some sort of product to bring to market, like, you know, S-mutons, be gone. Yeah, because, of course, cranberries have, uh, and cranberry extract and cons- various concentrations have been a part of, uh, of, of UTI prevention and, mm-hmm. and treatment for a while. So, indeed, moving forward, to what extent might we be able to utilize that for dental hygiene as well? Yeah, and you have to also consider that a lot of cranberry sauces also have sugar in them, so that sort yeah. of negates the whole thing. Yeah, so sadly it isn't just an, a, a situation where you can just say, well, I'll just put enough cranberry sauce on it, it'll even out. No, but yeah. uh, but but just in there is a lot of good stuff in all those other dishes uh, on the Thanksgiving table. Uh, the cranberry sauce does have a lot of good in it. So now you know all the stuff that is attacking the enamel of your teeth, and you have found excuses to leave the table and, and vanquish that bacteria, but you probably need another excuse, because at this time you've probably brushed your teeth like five times, right? Right, and you want to get outside of the house, if only yeah. for a minute, if only for just a minute, just to, just to, to breathe some fresh air. Look up at the sky, and if you do look up at the sky, you might just see something special. It is a Thanksgiving miracle, actually. Yes. Yeah. It is a comet, the Comet Ison. This is a visitor from the outer solar system, and it will skim the sun's outer atmosphere. And if it survives, that's the big question mark, mm-hmm. it could emerge as one of the brightest comets in years. And uh, it will, of course, have to fly by Mars first. But that's on Thanksgiving Day, folks. Yes. So, I mean, you can have multiple excuses there. Hey, there's going to be this. Uh, there's going to be this comet. I need to go outside and look for it. See if it's there. See if it's in the sky. Yeah. Cho- choose who you want to bring with you. Say, hey, you should come with me. Let's go look at it. Let's go see if it's there. And if the uh, talk gets particularly heated with religion and politics, you could always interject this little factoid, which is that the comet Ison is of much interest because it is actually originating from the Oort cloud, and this is a Ooh. distant reservoir of icy bodies and leftover material from the time the solar system was formed. Whoa. Yeah. And if that doesn't get them, this will. What happened when the turkey got into a fight, Robert? I don't know, Julie. What happened when the turkey got into a fight? It had the stuffing knocked out of them. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's thanks. a good one. Yeah. Uh, let's call over our robot here. Uh, bring him up to the uh, the dinner table and see if we have any listener mail. All right. This is another one that came uh, to us in response to the science of uncanny music. Um, Rebecca writes in and says, "Hi, Robert and Julie. Just finished listening to the science of uncanny music podcast and wanted to respond regarding film scores. My favorite film." is No Country for Old Men by the Coen Brothers, which is, of course, based on uh, Cormac McCarthy's novel. It's wonderful. It's it, Yeah, it's wonderful. I, it certainly uh, stands uh, as tall as the best cinematic adaptation of Cormac McCarthy to date. Uh, anyway, she continues, so What I love about the music score of the film is that there is no music. Well, almost. I find that the scenes are far more tense when there is an absence of music. This preference could be uh, because of uh, sensitivity I have with sound. In a film where there is jarring music intended to scare the audience, I'm more likely to think, uh, think, will you keep it quiet down there? I'm trying to watch a movie. Thank you for all the podcasting hours you put in. Otherwise, my own work would be woefully incomplete. Uh, and that's from Rebecca in New Zealand. Yeah, I, I do think that she's right, that the lack of sound, the, the lack of music adds this idea of alienation and isolation. Yes. And, you know, we talked about the, the sounds and the visuals working together. It, this is an example. Um, no Country for Old Men is an example. If you can think of the, the horror movie, mm-hmm. or in this case, it's just a, a very suspenseful movie, as the, uh, as, the, as the meal on the plate. 
and then the sound design is the gravy. Mm-hmm. Now, there are cases where the gravy perfectly complements what you're eating, and there are cases where the gravy is just covering up the foulness of the food on the plate. And there are certainly situations where you have, like, a bad movie, uh, an uneven movie, and you feel more manipulated by the sound. Like, you're just making some noises at me and showing me something, uh, you know, flash out of a corner and expecting to scare me or expecting mm-hmm. to make me feel tense. Whereas a film like No Country for Old Men by the Coen brothers, it, it does all of that without the, the benefit or the addition of music. All right, here's another bit of mail that we, uh, that we received. This is from Zoe. Zoe writes and says, Good day, Julie and Robert. I wonder if that means she's from Australia. A lot of you are. Uh, I just listened to the Enclosed Cognition episode, and it explains something that happens to me on a regular basis. I volunteer with a marine rescue organization here in Australia, and I wear a uniform when I'm on duty. It's similar uniform to what uh, Ambos here wear, blue within big reflective letters, quote, marine rescue, unquote, on the back. I've noticed that as soon as I put on the uniform, I'm more businesslike, more professional, if you will, and more on the ball. I'm more assertive, too. I'm normally quite shy, but the unif- when I, but with the uniform, I'm on all there and not afraid to do or ask what I need to do. Finally, I've also noticed that when I'm a bit off color, under the weather, with a cold or something, I feel, I feel it a lot less when I put my uniform on. I've been noticing this effect for a while uh, now, but uh, but had to put it down to my own quirkiness. But your podcast now makes me feel quite normal. So thanks. I still sort of reel at the fact that the enclosed cognition study came out of a Simpsons episode. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So if you want to contribute, if you want to share stuff with us or uh, get a taste of some more of the stuff that we're doing, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You'll find all the podcast episodes there. I mean all of them, not just the ones that are on iTunes, but the entire backlog. You'll also find blog posts, videos, uh, everything you could want from us, pictures of what we look like. Imagine that. And you can find us on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, and Google Plus as well. And you can always drop us a line at BelowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 